morning, church family. Happy Sabbath. I realize that it has been since last year since I was able to preach, so some of you may not recognize me. My name is Mike Taylor. I'm one of the uh, members of the pastoral team here at the Campion Church. Some of you guys know me. Hi, kiddos. (laughs) Um, I am excited to be able to get up and preach what is almost an introductory message for our summer sermon series. This past week was supposed to be our vacation Bible school, but unfortunately we ran into some complications with our, our plans for doing VBS this past week. So it's been postponed to the end of the summer, but that still left our worship service today in need of a, uh, of a message. And so they said, hey, Mike, I know it's supposed to be VBS week, but do you have something you could share? And I said, yeah, I could probably pull something out. And I know before I get up here and talk a little bit, some of you have been just sitting nice and quiet so far through the worship service. I want to give you guys an opportunity to look at the person next to you or somebody in your immediate vicinity, and I want to give you guys an opportunity to talk for just a second. You ready? No. Specific question. Specific question. When you sleep at night, are you a fan person or a silence person? When you sleep at night, fan or no fan? And I know some of you are thinking, man, it's like 91 degrees out right now. Some of you are fan people right now, I know. (laughs) I know this seems like a silly question. It's a simple one. But let's be honest here. In all transparency, this is a question I wish somebody would have asked me before I got married to my lovely wife, Andrea. When you go through premarital counseling, there's all sorts of jokes about the different things that you discover about a loved one when uh, you, you two live your separate lives and then you get married and you move in together and you discover all of those strange little idiosyncrasies about each other, such as where do they squeeze the toothpaste? Is the toilet paper overhand or underhand? And there's a joke about all of these different scenarios of things that will drive you crazy about the other person. And we thought it was funny until the night that we got married and it was time for sleep. And I go over to the fan that's in the corner of our bedroom and I turn on the fan. And I'm walking back towards the bed and Andrea says, what do you think you're doing? I sleep with a fan on. I sleep in dead silence. I can't sleep without a fan. I can't sleep with noise. What do you do? So a little bit of a confession about where that came from, a little bit of history for me. I grew up in a house that does not have air conditioning. So in the summertime, I grew up with one of those big, beautiful, like $15 Walmart box fans. You guys know what I'm talking about. Did not have air conditioning, so that was my savior in the summertime. And those things not only do a a good job of pushing air across, but they are loud. To the point that I grew used to the noise that came with them. Every single day and every single night, the box fan is on. And you get used to it after a while. As the summer becomes fall and the fall becomes winter, the box box fan stayed on. And so now here we are in Michigan in the wintertime, and I can't sleep without my precious box fan. So it's a little bit chilly, so I grab a sleeping bag. And I, get, I, I sleep under a sleeping bag with my box fan on all winter long. And then winter becomes spring, and spring becomes summer. I am so used to my sleeping bag that now all year round, box fan and sleeping bag. I'll tell you, we were in for a surprise when Andrea and I finally had a a, a place to call our own, and I turned on the fan. So I actually brought with me, this is not the same one, and this is not a sales pitch, 
but the thing that may have saved our marriage from the second day that we were married, this cute little tornado. It got the wind moving. It gave me just what I needed, but it's not too loud to be disruptive to Andrea, who would literally sleep on a Sabbath afternoon, would go to take a nap, and she'd be like, I can't sleep with that stereo on. I'm like, what stereo? Downstairs, around the corner, in the kitchen, her mom would have a stereo set at like half. Not like 50%, like half a percent. Like the CD player is on and the disc is spinning. No sound is coming out. She could hear the CD spinning in the CD player. And the tornado did very nicely for us uh, because it wasn't too loud, but it got the circulation moving. But let's be, uh, it, for me, it, was, it wasn't just the circulation. Like I said, it was the noise. There is something nice about the white noise that you can get in the middle of the night. This is why I am a big fan of sleeping with a fan on because I like the noise. It helps to cover up the sounds that might otherwise keep me awake. How many of you have a hard time in the middle of the night when a noise catches your attention. You're just a soft enough sleeper that a noise catches your attention. Might be a train in the distance. Might be that dog next door. There is something nice about the white noise that helps to blend together all of the other noises so that none of them are distinct because they all kind of ride at about the same level. None of them stand out anymore. And for sleep, that's good. When all of the noises stand as, the, as balanced and nothing is distinct, that's fine. But are there times where the noises blend together a little bit too well and you, you kind of wonder, is there a distinction? When there are, let's say, eight billion voices all crying out, do you ever wonder if your cries are just white noise to God? With almost 8 billion people all calling out at the same time, with the concerns and cries of their heart and the struggles and situations that they're going through, as we all cry out, do we sort of become white noise to God? In fact, I wonder, how does he hear? How does he hear any voice distinctly if we are all part of the same chorus? It's one of the challenges as somebody who's into uh, multimedia ministry and I've had to micro uh, do a microphone for, for music and for concerts and for choirs and, and to hear these large groups of people. Can I pick out any of the, the singers distinctly or do they just all sort of blend together? This is not just a question I've had or a struggle that I've had. But this is something that the psalmist, in fact, this is David. You think David had a relationship with God? Did David have a relationship with God? In Psalm 22 and verse 2, David raises the same question, but some like 3,000 years ago. In Psalm 22 and verse 2, he says, Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And in the night season, not silent. We know that there is God around when life is blue skies and butterflies. But when we cry out in the darkness of life, when the storms come rolling through, and we cry out to God and we say, God, hear my cries, hear my pleas, help me. Can he hear me? Or are my prayers just white noise? Today we're going to take an in-depth look at Psalm 22 and discover that actually David does find five sources or five reasons to know that God is listening in Psalm 22. He finds five reassurances that God is there. And he shares them in the psalm that we'll be doing today. Our sermon is called Cries in the Darkness. And it, the, the tagline is simple. David wondered if God was listening to him. And God answers in a big way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we take an opportunity to pause here and to lift up our voice in prayer and to lift up our hearts to you, Lord, I pray that you would speak to us and help us to hear you, your words. 
And help us to know that you are listening too, and that you can hear us, and that you care. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I want you to take your Bibles, open up to the 22nd Psalm. Many of you may be familiar with the 23rd Psalm. It's kind of nice to dive around a little while into the Psalms and and get to know some of its neighbors. In this case, we're going to discover the next door neighbor of the 23rd Psalm, Psalm number 22. When you're there, say amen. I will let you know that many of the verses will be on the screen, but it's great to be able to open up your Bible and to see this. And in fact, uh, I'm going to give you these five little notes about what stand out to me uh, about this psalm. And it might not be a bad thing if you need to make your own little notations of five ways that David finds hope and encouragement through these times. Because he does have that question right at the beginning. God, can you hear me? Like I said, our special music was, I hear the voice of Jesus. Can Jesus hear my voice when I cry out? Oh my God, I cry in the daytime and you do not hear. He says right at the beginning of this psalm. So what are the five ways that God, or that David finds reassurance during his difficult times when he cries in the darkness? What are the five ways that he finds his encouragement? You're in Psalm 22, say amen. If you need just another minute, you're still loading it on your phone, your tablet, still flipping the pages, say, have mercy. You're there. Perfect. So let's go to the first one. It actually comes in that very next verse. It's a short little phrase in in verse 3. The first thing that, that he discovers is David remembered who God was even when God didn't do what David wanted him to do. This is something I've preached about before, but David remembered who God was even when God didn't do what David, uh, what David wanted, when David wanted it, or uh, basically, he just needed the reminder that God is still God. Psalm 22 and verse 3, after saying those things, he says, but you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. And I'm going to pause for a second there. The last, or one of the last times I had an opportunity to get up and preach, one of the things that I talked about was the difference between praise and thanksgiving. And I know this was like six months ago, but let's do a quick recap of the difference between praise and thanksgiving. Because we do a really good job of doing thanksgiving, but we sometimes wrestle with praise, and in fact, sometimes what we call praise is really just another version of thanksgiving. If I were to ask you for a list of prayer requests, you go to Sabbath school and you say, does anybody have a prayer request? Most of our prayer requests will fall into two categories. They'll either be, thank you, God, for what you have done for me, or, hey, God, would you please do this for me? It becomes a list of pleases and thank yous, and that's what it's about. Many of our prayers fall into one of those two categories right? And one of the struggles that I am deeply concerned about is making sure that we have a proper balance when it comes to approaching God through this gift of prayer. Because if it all becomes about what He has done for me and what He can do for me, who becomes the master and who becomes the servant? And one of the best ways to know what the answer is there is what happens when he says no or when he stays silent. How often do we decide, you know what, fine. I'm not getting from you what I want. I'll go find somebody else to give me what I want. And in that situation, who is God and who just got fired? I want to make sure that we know, apart from what he does, we need to know who he is. If I only celebrated my wife for what she did, what happens if she doesn't? If she can't, if she this, if she that, will I still love her? Or is my love for her based on who she is apart from what she does. That's what David came to realize. 
He needed first and foremost the reassurance that, you know what? Yes, I'm crying out. Yes, it feels like you're not responding to me or you're not responding to me yet. But you are still holy and you are still enthroned. And that's good enough for me. What is it about God that brought you to worship today? What is it that you're here celebrating today? Was it just about the things that he does? Or is there something about who he is that makes him worthy of worship? That's something for you to contemplate. But let's put it this way. Even if God says no, is he still God to you? When Kent prays these prayers, when you look at the prayer list from Ben, whatever the case is, when you take the time in the privacy of your own house, of your own situation, and you cry out and you say, God, help me. I'm going through a deep, dark, hard time. Please, God, help me. Deliver me from this. Right here, right now, just do it. I know you can, and he can. But what if he says... No. Not in the way that you want, not in the timing that you want, not in your way, but in my way. Is he still your God? So that's the first realization David had. Even in the darkness, even when he cries out and nothing bounces back, he knows that on the other end of the line, there is still a God on the throne. Is there still a God on the throne? Amen. Okay. So that's the first source of reassurance right here, right at the beginning, verse 3. Next thing that David discovered is he realized how God has worked in the past with his ancestors. Continuing on in the psalm, our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and they were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. The second source of reassurance is what happened with the ancestors, those forefathers who have come before, who have walked the walk, who have cried the cries, and God answered in his way to do something majestic and magnificent and praiseworthy. And so it makes me wonder, who are our ancestors? For some of you, if you are a several-generation Adventist or several-generation Christian, you've heard stories of how God has delivered your forefathers, your parents and grandparents and great-grandparents. And I know that in an institutional church like this, some of you have heard stories of your great-great-great-grandparents and their walk with God and what He's done for them. Where else can you find stories of your ancestors and their walk with God? Well, I would say things like, look at the stories of your spiritual forefathers, maybe some of the fathers of the church, some of the great missionaries, some of the great church leaders and thinkers of times past that God has done significant things through. Have you ever had a chance to look at some of these magnificent stories? Like, uh, uh, who was that guy who prayed for bread that one day, and all of a sudden just a baker shows up with a loaf of bread for him? Anybody know? George... Mueller, there you go. <laughs> Look at all the missionaries in books like The Great Controversy who stood faithful for God, and God stood faithfully for them. Time and time again, you can find stories of your biological or spiritual ancestors and forefathers that when they cry to God, God did something majestic for them. Oh, and by the way, if you're looking for a great storybook about the way that God still works with his people... I got another one to recommend here. It's got chapters and chapters and stories and stories of God delivering his people. And this isn't just some fairy tales. It's not just a, a work of fiction. God has done these things. And if he's done for them, he can do for you. As he did for Moses, as he did for David, as he did for your favorite story character. 
Esther or Daniel or, or Paul. As he did for them, he can do for you. And that could be enough, by the way. These two points, if that's all I had today was verses 1 to 5, I would have enough material to say, you know what? I know you're going through hard times, but guess what? God is still there, and he's proven himself time and time again so that he can be here. And I'd have enough for a sermon, right? But David's not done, so I'm not done. Because David found more ways and more reasons to praise God. As he continues down, for example, down into, uh, down towards verse 9, the third way that David finds this reassurance that God is there is David remembers how God has worked in his own life. Down in verse 9, we find, but you were the one who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while I was on my mother's breasts. I was cast upon you from birth, from my mother's womb, you have been my God. From the first breath, from the first heartbeat, from the first instant, you've been there, not just for them, but for me. And some of us can be reminded, by the way, of what he's done for us since that first heartbeat, since that first breath, the way that he's delivered us, the way that he's provided for us, the way that he's revealed himself to us. Some of you may have a miraculous story of something that God has done for you in your experience. Maybe with about the time you were, give or take, 16 or 17 years old, and you had the keys to your parents' car. And you look back now and praise God for the way that he delivered you from your stupidity that one night, that one trip, when he saved you from yourself. Some of you have stories of the ways that he's revealed himself and guided you through those hard times that were not of your own stupidity. It's just the the crazy things that happen in this world. The times that you're looking around and wondering, how am I going to pay the rent? And then you'll go to the mailbox and there's a check in the mail. When you wonder, how am I going to get through this health challenge? How am I going to get through algebra class? And God says, I got you. And he helps you through those hard times. You don't have to go look at David's story to know that God's here. You don't have to go look at Moses' story or Joseph's story. And yes, that's actually what we're going to do over the course of the next couple of months is look at some of these stories and dive deep into them. And those are great places, like I said, point two. But point three is many of you don't have to look much further than the circumstances of your own birth, let alone everything since then, to recognize that God is there. The breath you just took, gift of God. Actually, this section continues for a little while. He cries out a little bit. He talks about some of the struggles he's gone through. And he's actually making his very specific pleas as he goes through here to say, you know what, God, I know you've done this for me before, and I know you've helped me before. But he turns back to what he was originally saying as this this portion of the, the psalm continues. And he says, all right, God, I've been crying out. I need you to hear me now because I'm going through the specific situation. I love this, by the way. Uh, Andrea pointed out that in the King James Version of Psalm 22 and verse 21, is he's crying out for, for deliverance from things like lions and dogs. And Psalm 22 and verse 21, how many of you have a King James Version? What animal does he specifically beg for deliverance from, King James people? All right, let's put it on the screen. Let's see what the answer is. Save me from the lion's mouth, for thou hast heard me from the horns of unicorns. That's right, Heidi. Unicorns are biblical animals. Now, of course, King James uh, translators were relying on a, a much different version of the English language and used words a little bit differently than we do. They probably weren't relying on those, uh, those frilly little colorful horse things with horns. Uh, in fact, 
other translations, the New Living Translation is a little bit more modern version, uh, says, save me from the horns of these wild oxen. The book of Job refers to the same animal, by the way, and it's often translated as things like rhinoceroses, because believe it or not, there are unicorn rhinoceroses. Most rhinoceroses, you know, have a little horn and a big horn. Those are bicorn. Some of them do not have the little horn, though. They just have the one big horn. Unicorn, one horn. So different translations will take this verse and do different things with it. King James people, biblical evidence for unicorns. New King James people, did you notice what just happened there? When we switched from the New Living Translation of the King James Version to the New King James Version, do me a favor, Addison, go back a slide. Go back a slide. King James Version ends with unicorns. Next one, New Living Translation ends with wild oxen. New King James Version ends with, whoa, where'd that come from? You see that phrase, you have answered me? Where did that come from? I'll tell you, it's in the Hebrew. Most other translations just take that phrase and just bury it deep into the, uh, into the preceding passages. They, they think it's just another way of saying what has already been said. The New King James translators say, you know what? No, there is something different about this phrase. It doesn't seem to fit in with everything else it's been saying. It almost seems to be God's way, or David's way, of, David's way of saying suddenly, I've been praying for you to answer me, and boom, you answered me. I need deliverance, and you gave me deliverance. You have answered me, is what the, King James, or the New King James Version says, grabbing off of the Hebrew. Now, why is this a big deal? Because he's crying out, and then all of a sudden, in that little gap, and then you have answered me. What did God say when David's asking his questions? What was God's response to David's cries in the darkness? What does God say to answer David in this passage. You can look and look. I'll let you know. The words are not there. Because in this particular passage, David hears God speaking to him directly. That's actually our fourth way that God, Daniel or David hears reassurance. Is he has just a personal moment with God where God shows up in his life and says, hey, I've got something just for you. So what does God have for David? I don't know. David didn't write it down. We, the readers, we don't get to hear and experience God's words to David. But that doesn't mean that he hasn't found a way to reveal himself to David. In fact, I bet you quite, I bet you a billion dollars that as David is penning these words, as he's writing it down, I bet you he got a hit from the Holy Spirit that just kind of washed over him. Because his language changes, his tone changes from this point on. Some, something changed about his experience with God. And what goes from this cries in the darkness to where are you? Everything changes from this point forward in the Psalms. Or in this Psalm. We don't know what is said. But that doesn't mean that God hasn't said something to David that got his attention. And I know that can be hard for some people. To say, you know what, David had an experience, I want that experience too. David, you had an experience with God. Let me in on your experience. But here is a truth that will drive some of us crazy. We can't expect everyone to have the same experience with God that we do. Some of us expect that as I go through my walk, and then I look over at somebody else who is also walking towards God, 
We, some of us almost get this idea that my walk is supposed to be identical to their walk, or dare I say the other way around, that their walk is supposed to be identical to my walk. The thing that God just convicted me of last week, he's supposed to convict them of too. Why aren't you convicting them of what you just convicted me of, God? Why didn't you just change their life the way you changed my life? Why aren't they on the same path that I'm on? And I know when you say it like that, it seems silly and it seems obvious. Because we're all unique people. Every single one of us, unique and one of a kind, and we are all on a path, same destination, but different, different journey along the way. Is that okay? Is it okay that God is going to convict me of something about this today? And some of you might not even think about it for 30 years. Is that okay? You going to vote me down on this motion? Is it okay, even for sometimes a husband and a wife, that the wife figures it out long before the husband does? Yeah, I hear Jonathan over there saying amen. You're going to figure that one out pretty quickly. (laughs) People get the truth in, in the time that God has for them, and that's okay. It's okay that God is going to say something to you at different times and in different places. He's going to do it in His order. Same path, or same destination. You'll get there eventually. So it's okay that we don't know how, David reply, or how God replied to David. You know what we do, though? We step back and say, praise the Lord! David, I'm glad you had that experience. Hallelujah! Is that good news? You know what some of you are thinking the good news is? You'll see down here in the bottom right corner, some of you have a hard time seeing it because of the plant, uh, says number 25 on the bottom. My... Uh, Slideshow has 50 slides in it. Some of you are saying, hallelujah, he's halfway done here. I'll give you a hint. Poor Addison. She's going to start tapping the, the, the keyboard like it's a machine gun. We've got one more reason, though, that David knows that God is there. The last reason is that God, or David remembers not only what he's done in the past and what he's done today, but he remembers God's promises of future deliverance as well. He knows what God is about to do, and that gives him encouragement to know that, yeah, God just did those things, but he didn't step back and say, whoo, I'm tired. I am going to enjoy a nice, wonderful Sabbath. I'll see you guys when my son comes and picks you up. He remembers these promises that God has given to his people. Jump down to verse 26, for example. He remembers promises, things like, the poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. We know, for example, down at the end of the psalm, prosperity, or uh, I've got it in the New Living Translation here. Let me go ahead and read it for you in the New Living Translation. I do like this part of the New Living Translation, uh, where they may have got the other verse a little bit wonky. Um, Verses 30 and 31, our children will also serve him. Future generations will hear about the wonders of the Lord. His righteous acts will be told to those not yet born. Even those not yet born, God has his eye on. And they will hear about everything he has done. Those future generations, they're going to get encouragement from the past generations. Because that same God who worked back then will work forevermore. Is that good news? So this message opened with Psalm 22 and verse 2. I will remind you again of what David said. Oh my God, I cry in the daytime and you do not hear. And in the night season, not silent. By the time this portion of the psalm is rolled around, towards the end, look at like verse 24. In verse 24, we find, For he is not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him, he heard. When we cry out to God, he hears. He hears. 
So in less than two dozen verses, David has gone from crying in the darkness and wanting to know, God, when I'm going through my hard times and I'm pleading my soul out to you, where are you? 22 verses later, anyone who cries out, God hears them. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. So David's wondering if God is listening to him when he cries in the darkness. And yet, something is still just kind of nagging at me here. Do you, hear, do you ever hear somebody cry and say, good luck with that one? When somebody's going through a hard time and you say, wow, that must be really tough for you. Good luck. What good is a God who hears if he doesn't act? What good is a God who hears if he doesn't act? And I'll honestly admit to you, it's still possible to wonder, did God even listen? Or did he just hear it? Isn't that what the verse said? He hears them? You ever wonder sometimes if somebody's listening to you or if they just hear you? There's a joke I've heard before about a husband, a comedian gets up and says, so uh, my wife out of the blue one day was talking about how I never listened to her, and I thought, that's a strange way to start a conversation. What sort of reassurance do we get that God didn't just hear David's cries or any of our cries, but he was listening? Honestly, the answer shocked me to realize that a thousand years later, in what was probably the darkest day in God's life, we see these words come out in Mark chapter 15. Go ahead, Addison. In the darkness, we hear coming out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those words are not an original creation of Jesus there on the spot. He is quoting from Psalm 22. We started with verse 2. That's verse 1. Psalm 22 and verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me in the, and from the words of my groaning? Jesus plucked the words of David from a thousand years earlier and made them his own words. And by the way, this psalm is filled with imagery of the cross and crucifixion. Verse 18, for example, notes, they, divided my, or they divide my garments among them and for my clothing cast lots. Does that sound familiar to you? A couple verses earlier, back in verse 16, for the dogs have surrounded me, for the congregation of the wicked has enclosed me, and they pierced my hands and my feet. Does that sound familiar to you? Jesus could have said anything he wanted to there on the cross, but there on the cross, Jesus took the opportunity to show humanity that our cries in the darkness of life are more than just white noise to him. By quoting the words of Jesus, or by quoting the words of David, Jesus says, I have heard your words. Not just that I'm not just that I heard, but I'm listening to your words, and that I remembered your words. A thousand years later, your cries still sick on my heart. I remembered your words, and in fact, I don't just remember your words, I remember you. I heard you. And I'm doing something about it. I heard your cries in the darkness, and I'm doing something about it. And it's not just David's cries that he heard, and he did something about. 
He heard Joseph's cries in the darkness of Canaanite well, and he did something about it. He heard Israel's cries in the darkness of Egyptian slavery, and he did something about it. He heard Hannah's cries in the darkness of infertility, and he did something about it. And he hears Job's cries in the darkness of tragedy and loss, and he does something about it. He hears your cries in the darkness of relationship struggles and addictions and financial challenges and health challenges. He hears your cries in the darkness. And he is doing something about it. You are not just white noise to God. It's not just your voice and the voice of eight billion other people crying out. Your cries are not white noise to God. You are not white noise to God. And in fact, there are three things that I've discovered about Psalm 22. I know it's five things. I got three things. Nice and simple. You need to know three things before I close my Bible. Number one, he loves you. Number two, when you cry out, he hears you. And number three, he's doing something about it. Praise team, you're up. This next song we will sing is uh, He Will Hold Me Fast. Maybe a song that is unfamiliar to you or new or uh, if you've heard it before, the words uh, really chime in with the three things that uh, Pastor Michael has outlined for us. That God loves us immensely, that He hears us, and that he's doing something. He is holding us. He will hold me fast.
if you need your Savior to hold you fast, to, to, to reach out and to share the cries of your darkness, and you want somebody else to lift those up with you, if you want to have a, submit a prayer request or to share a little bit of connection to know, yeah, God's there. Do me a favor. You can connect with us. Hop on camping.church slash connect. Send us a message. Let us know that you know that God is there. You can also send us a text and the QR code. But I want you to know once again, He loves you, He hears you, and He's doing something about it. Now may the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord smile upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord show you His favor and give you His peace. Amen.